0: With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George, welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good
1: morning and well, welcome to After 9. I'm your host for the next hour, Eric Allen. panel today is John Zukowski, Peter Ewart, and James Steidl. Uh, we've got a number of different uh, subjects we want to get into. The first one with Peter will be kind of an overview on the competition in Canada, or at least the decline of competition in Canada, which is uh, pushing up prices and profits. So the competition boroughs have a look at that, and Peter will take us through that. And we'll move on to uh, James. He wants to talk a bit about uh, uh, forestry around the city of Prince George and, you know, the fire concerns and what we can do about it, what we have done about it and, you know, what we should be doing about it. And then uh, John wants to talk about uh, (coughs) this uh, city businessman that's suing the city because of damages to his building, and uh, John will get into that, and that'll be interesting. So we have a number of topics behind that if we happen to run into a time problem, but no shortage of topics, especially in this day and age, uh, in this part of the country, so... I'm going to move to Peter first and just get the overview on uh, competition. Peter?
2: Yes, uh, Eric. Uh, this report was commissioned by the Competition Bureau of Canada and it's titled Competition in Canada from, 2000, the, from the Year 2000 to 2020, an Economy at a Crossroads. Mm-hmm. The purpose of the report was to examine the general state of competition in the business sector across the Canadian economy and how competition between companies has evolved from uh, in the last 20 years. The results of this report are not good at all as they show that there's been an increase in uh, a big increase in corporate concentration and monopolization and this is at the expense of the people in Canada including skyrocketing higher prices that Canadians must pay for food and other goods and services from these companies. Anyway, before I get into the report, I want to just say a few words about the Competition Bureau itself. According to the Bureau, its role as a federal government agency is to protect and promote competition to benefit Canadian consumers and businesses. It claims that competition drives economic growth, uh, and it it further claims that it encourages businesses to innovate and become more productive, and that it benefits consumers because it tends to lower prices prices, increase choice, and improve quality of products. In any case, some of the conclusions in the report which show how monopolization is increasing are as follows. First of all, concentration has increased in the most monopolized industries, and a greater number of industries are becoming highly concentrated, with just a few or in some locations even one big company dominating the entire sectors of the economy. We see that trend with the monopolization in the forest industry, the grocery sector, telecommunications, big tech, and so on. Secondly, figures show that the the companies that are in the top 10 largest have tended to hold on to that ranking over the years, which means that new firms are less likely to push the top firms out of their positions, which suggests that competition has decreased or stagnated. As the report notes, When new firms enter an industry, it encourages existing firms to innovate, charge lower prices, offer better quality products, and so on. But that is not happening to the degree that it should. With monopolization, industries in Canada have become less dynamic. There are are too many barriers for new companies to get into existing industry sectors that are dominated by the big monopolies. These barriers can include higher costs of entry or expansion, regulations, and economies of scale. Of course, regulations are necessary, but too often they they can be used to keep smaller companies out. Big companies can have whole departments that are devoted to dealing with regulations, research, submitting bids, etc., which smaller companies cannot afford to shoulder. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Canada's regulatory environment is ranked is ranked among the least favorable to product market competition, and that's in the in the world. In addition, or within the countries of the OECD, in addition, there is the economies of scale problem, where big companies with lower costs have an advantage over new companies trying to get into the market. And then there are the results of this increasing increased monopolization, including higher markups and skyrocketing profits. Markups are defined as the difference between the price a firm charges for a product and the cost of producing it. According to the report, markups have risen overall and more so in already higher markup industries. In other words, the biggest gougers are gouging most of all. And the same holds true for the issue of profits. Overall profits have risen, but even more so in the top 10% of higher profit industries. In a more competitive economy, it becomes more difficult for companies to arbitrarily jack up their markups and their profits. In a less competitive, monopolized economy, it is much easier for big companies to rig prices. Observations. My own observations on this report. If the goal of the Federal Competition Bureau is to have fostered increased competition in the last few decades, this report, which it itself has commissioned shows that it has clearly failed as an agency. It shows that the various federal governments which oversee it over the years have also clearly failed. The number of rulings that the Bureau has made against the the monopolization of companies is laughable in that fact. It's a fact that Canada is one of the most highly monopolized countries in the world. The aim of these monopolies is not competition, but rather market domination. It is not average profit that they aim for, but rather maximum profit, whereby they will even close down mills and factories and other operations that are making reasonable profit in order to invest in areas where they can make maximum profit. In my opinion, the whole illusion to go back to some kind of, uh, however, in my opinion, the whole illusion to go back to some kind of version of 19th century classical capitalism is a pipe dream. We can't go back in history but have to deal with the situation as it exists today, where, mar- where mass, large-scale industrial production exists, along with all the new technology and production techniques which are geared to that. So what to do about the situation? There can be a place for small-scale ca- small, small ca- capitalist production, but it, it won't dominate as it did in the 19th century. You can't go backwards in history. You can't feed, clothe, and house 40 million people with, uh, with small-scale small, small production alone. In my opinion, we need to think about and discuss new ways and forms that are beyond present-day monopoly capitalism, as well as beyond 19th century-style classical capitalism, one in which the people have more say and more control over what happens with the economy. We need new models where production is more cooperative and works in the interests of the people and not billionaire oligarchs. Um, whether that is called democracy or socialism or cooperatism or some other name doesn't matter. And the second thing, the last thing I, we need to discuss, um, we need to discuss measures to restrict the existing monopolies in ways, that, in ways that favor the citizenry as a whole, whether it be workers, small and medium businesses, communities, etc., These monopolies cannot be allowed to have free reign to gouge and manipulate the population. There needs to be more restrictions in place, definitely speaking.
1: Anyway, those are some initial comments. Good, thanks, Peter. Yeah, there's any number of different ways of looking at this situation. Uh, One, I would say, is that the people... Like, if you go to the competition bureau as an example that's been, you know, highly paid and working supposedly for the government for 20 years, and you get that type of report, which as Peter pointed out basically said, you know, we haven't been doing our job. That's just, you know, just one indication of what's happening. I think if you go to the universities and and uh, business, big businesses and that, look, you'll see they're not doing their job either. And uh, people are just, somebody wants to put in an increase, they pass it all the way down the line, goes right to the consumer, and Everybody just carries on. Nobody looks at anything anymore. Like nobody asks the question, "What do you think you're doing?"
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Or why do you think you have the right to do that? And these people should be uh, taken to task. And they should be asked point blank, you know, and and follow the uh, the supply chain from where the item was purchased. Look at everything that happened to it until it got to the consumer. Not hard to figure out who's putting the prices up or what's going on Mm -hmm. and then you know and we used to have that it used to be the Canadian Freight Association or something would look at freight rates and how they're handled there's all sorts of uh, different aspects to it quite a number of years ago the CP and CN came to an agreement on running trains from Jasper to Vancouver where they uh, they all agreed to go southbound or west or whatever they call it down there on one side of the track and they'd come out on the other side and now they only got the two uh, tracks to maintain but they went you're only paying for one instead of one in each direction like you'd be before so it's a great idea for cncp i can guarantee you pretty well guarantee you that there was no savings passed on to the consumer mm-hmm. for that type of situation so james you want to get in on this
4: Yeah, I think I think we as a society have really been kind of hoodwinked by, you know, that that the the basic good is um, the corporate profit. The what's good for the corporations is good for the public. You know, the more the more efficient these huge corporations are, somehow that that that's going to benefit the public. But just like you say, Eric, you know, the the savings that these companies achieve with this efficiency that doesn't result in lower uh, cost of the two by four, right? That just means more profits for the monopoly. Yeah, uh, and when you don't have competition, all that profit just goes to the owners. <clears throat> you know, there's a there's a funny story there about the Rogers Shaw merger that got approved. You know, the the, the competition uh, bureau actually kind of opposed that. You know, and they and they gave uh, Shaw the runaround uh, in the name of competition. Uh, it got approved anyway, and then uh, the, the the board gets uh, gets reprimanded for that. Right, the the competition. So there's an over, there's an even higher body called the Competition Tribunal, I believe, and they reprimanded the uh, the Competition Bureau for giving uh, Rogers a hard time, and now they owe Rogers something like ten million dollars. <laughs> like, like it, and then and then they turn around and write a report saying, yeah, the competition uh, is going down in our country. Like, it, it makes it makes zero sense, you know. Uh, I don't know, it's just, it's really a frustrating topic. Really, really appreciate you digging into that, Peter, and, and writing that up. Um, you know, and I, I think at some point, like, some of these big monopolies, like, I, I agree with Peter, you can't go back in time. Uh, I, think, I think there's got to be, in the future, I think we're going to have to look at some of these monopolies as public utilities. And, you know, everybody hates the word nationalization. But, uh, you know, something like Facebook, something like Google, I, I honestly see canada post or some kind of arm's length publicly owned uh company delivering those kinds of services with with constitutional protections for privacy and and no political interference and that kind of thing i think that's where where we're ultimately headed with some of these big tech uh, some of these big tech monopolies
1: i think an example of it just come to mind while james was talking there like down in the states washington Oregon different states where they're, they're, building, like they're building they can build houses down there and sell them cheaper than we can up here even though we're living right in a forest but uh, um, but you might on a site where, where houses are being built you might have 10 or 15 different companies in there building houses and competing with each other whereas here you'll have one for each 100 uh, lots or something be one construction company maybe 5 big ones in town and by some miracle that I don't think any of us understand. They all arrive at roughly the same price for the house. It's like our gasoline. You can have 26 service stations, but with the exception of Costco, maybe a little degree to superstore, they all come up with the same price for gas. It's like magic you know how that works. Even can be changing it simultaneously. If you look down the street, they're changing it over at the same time. So, is that competition or is that just collusion. I don't know. But I know the gas is pretty well the same. We have a, a lot of uh, examples that we can get into. But John, do you want to make a comment on this?
3: No, I think we're i think we're covering the, the point that the large companies and monopolies, the ones that benefit is not so much even the shareholders. It ends up being the CEOs and upper brass in, in these large companies that, that profit off of it. Uh, even shareholders get jilted around by actions of the uh, upper echelon. So it's a, a competition bureau that isn't calling uh, these entities out to task. That's a problem. Uh, we need to look at uh, revising that system. Yeah,
1: I'm, we're going to go for a break now, so we'll be back shortly.
5: Good. Hi, this is the Wolfman. Few
1: entertainment genres have captured our imagination and
5: been as successful as the good old-fashioned musical. From their vaudevillian roots to today's mega-productions, musicals have provided generations with a stream of memorable productions, show-stopping performances, and larger-than-life personalities. Join me for a unique adventure as we trip the light fantastic across more than a century of musical theater, from Broadway to the West End and all points in between. On with the show! Sunday afternoons at four. Only here on ninety-three point. 1 CFIS FM. First Student is a leader in student transportation and is excited to be adding to their family of school bus drivers and licensed mechanics. Let First Student put you in the driver's seat. You'll need a full driver's license, clean record, must be safety focused, and enjoy working with children. Apply online through workatfirst.com or call Christine at 250-900-8220. Apply today through workatfirst.com or by calling Christine at 250 At Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery, we asked numerous diabetics to monitor their blood sugar after enjoying our baked goods, and then share the results with us. Some said blood sugar went up, but the change was so mild it was irrelevant. Several said their blood sugar was unchanged, and several others showed us their blood sugar actually went down after eating our baked treats. If you're diabetic, check us out for yourself. You'll love our baking. At Deb's Cafe on 7th in Quebec, next to Pharmacy save. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today, a 30% chance of flurries late this morning. Wind from the north at 20, gusting to 40, a high of minus 1 with a wind chill to minus 9. Clearing tonight, gusting north winds continuing, a low of minus 9 with a wind chill to minus 16. For Tuesday, sunny and windy, a high
0: of minus 4
5: with a wind chill to minus 9.
0: This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFISFM.
1: Okay, we're back, still on competition in Canada. Peter, are you going to say a few words?
2: Uh, Yeah, I I wanted to just make a a comment also. Uh, This is not in the Competition Bureau report, which is focusing, you know, just on the economy. But it's not just our economy that is dominated by these uh, giant monopolies. Our political party process is dominated by them also. You know, just two examples, you know, the chief fundraiser for the Trudeau Liberal Party is Edgar Bronfman, who's from the billionaire Bronfman family. And, and furthermore, when the stimulus program for COVID was taking place, the company that played a big role in controlling the funds were representatives of the BlackRock Asset Management Company, which is probably the biggest oligopoly in the world today. And the, the same was in the case with the United States, where we have a situation where these hedge funds, banks, big corporations, uh, whether they're in media or big tech or whatever, um, they have huge influence on the political process. And that's one of the things I, th- I think that I, we have to look at. Besides looking at the question of the economy, we have to look at the political process itself being dominated by these by these big monopolies that are often multinationals or even foreign-based or whatever and have huge influence over uh, the, the direction of our politics in the country.
1: Okay, thanks, right. Yeah, I don't know what we can do about the politics because all these things kind of go hand in hand. And, uh, you know, we have the party system in Canada. You join the party, basically you're saying you agree with what they stand for. And then uh, they get most of their support from the big corporations. And Bob's your uncle. You're in. And uh, But nobody wants to run as an independent, so they don't have to answer to these people. And they can stand up and talk without having some masks or tape on their mouth. So, I don't know. Uh, people have an obligation to get off their butts and do something too it's not all just point the finger and blame we have to do something and uh, general rule we don't do much i got to give you an example we had here a while back which is still in the craw of Peter and I know a number of other people and that was the sale of BC Rail to as it turned out CN Rail there was a bidding process involved but you know I don't know if people even ask themselves the question well Why would CN even want the BC Rail? Uh, When the BC Rail first came to Prince George, they didn't have any rail cars. They got everything supplied to them by the CN. The CN got all the loads at Prince George and took them east. But later on, when they started getting their own rail cars and everything, and they had connections out of North Vancouver with the Union Pacific Railway, Burlington Northern, Canadian Pacific, and I think there was one other. Uh, they were then in a position to either go south with the American railways or the Canadian Pacific or go with CN. And so things, the dynamics changed a bit. And, uh, and there's a whole number of other things that took place, but they basically always had the pressure on BC Rail uh, trying to, uh, be sure they didn't make any money or anything. So, eventually CN got a hold of that railway and, uh, They're back to taking these loads at Prince George, 80-90% of them. Mm -hmm. They've got all the business, and they're basically a monopoly now. Any number of people were complaining and said we shouldn't be doing that, you know, because it's going to affect, uh, without any competition, it's going to affect prices. But, you know, nobody did anything. Even our mayor at that time, I think, Colin Kinsley and others, they're all in support of this. But these people, yeah, Pat Bell, these people don't understand how this competition works, what the ramifications of it are on business or anything. They just, somebody tells them something and they go along with it, put their hand up and vote for it. That's part of the problem we have today, voting for things. And, and passing bylaws and that, that we don't understand the ramifications of it because we don't do our homework. We don't know what the long-term thing is. What happens now when you're trying to get uh, rail cars, a small stripper, as an example, trying to get rail cars from uh, CN, the attitude basically is you'll get them when we get them there because there's a shortage that's the way it is. You can't get a hold of BC Rail and say, you know, I'm going to truck some stuff over there and load it in a rail car because the Seat owns them now.
4: Mm-hmm. So
1: now you're captive, you see. And there's all kinds of things that go like that around the country, but they cost us lots of money. It doesn't cost the railway I any. Mean, they actually save money because they got economies of scale. They're handling all that traffic to uh, Jasper on trains that are going to Jasper anyway. They just add more on there. So that really reduces their unit costs. So. Lots of different questions on competition, so... Uh, James, did you want to talk any more about it?
4: Or? No, just just a, that's a great point on the the BC rail. That uh, you know that that BC rail, the whole point of that was to tie us into kind of a north south axis and tie us into the Vancouver economy. Whereas previously the national owned railways, you know, that was an east west uh, orientation. And you know the benefit of the north south thing is that is basically it was for British Columbia, right? Now with the east west orientation, that's kind of more for the bigwigs in Toronto if you look at it from kind of a uh, metropolitan kind of perspective. And people like those mills in Mackenzie can't get rail cars. Uh, as far as I know, the, uh, the rail line is basically unused south of Williams Lake. Uh, they'll, they'll run trains to Williams Lake to get a few loads of lumber, uh, bring them north, and then it goes on to the east-west line. Uh, and then if they want to bring it down to Vancouver, apparently it goes down through Tedewan uh through down down through that route. So, you know, points south of Williams Lake aren't being serviced by that railroad anymore, which is really unfortunate because I think, you know, there would have be been opportunities to get passenger rail uh going to Vancouver uh on that line. Uh, when the roads got washed out there a couple of years ago, that line was still good and it wasn't being used to bring goods up to Prince George. So you know there's all sorts of reasons to get that uh, to get another company get some more competition on our, our railroad system here.
1: What we need to do is we need somebody to <clears throat> go out with a camera and uh, look at all the different rail. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars BC Rail that was spent on infrastructure on the branch lines, you know, with, up to the coal mines in uh, Tumbler Ridge and then back up uh, on the BC Rail extension going towards uh, Fort Nelson, or not Fort Nelson, but up towards the uh, uh, Yukon, anyway, but the, the, I forget how far they go, but th- that's all abandoned now. I mean, it's used by hunters in the fall with their skidoos going on the old roadbed. It cost us a $100 million to put it in there, and we walked away from it. And it's just sitting there in the middle of the forest. Mm-hmm. Money's just wasted, and no no real explanation for it. And the Sion's not going to develop that. Go ahead, Peter.
2: I... Um just overall, you know, looking at this uh, competition bureau report and all this, what it underlines for me is that we're in a changing situation, a major changing situation, uh, both in Canada and the world. There's a transitional thing that's going on here, where the uh, the mechanisms and and means and methods and and structures that came into being after the Second World War, in terms of the economy and and, and so on, they've, they've they're falling apart. We're in we're in a different situation, and that's why I think it's really important as as Canadians that we uh, enter into discussion in terms of where we where we are going, right? Because uh, the way we're we're, as a country right now we're foundering in terms of where we're going, uh, in terms of the trade relations on on the international scale as well as what's happening internally, like uh, as, as we talked about here. So uh, yeah, we're we're, in a, we're going into a period where we we need a lot more discussion on this whole thing.
1: Okay, thanks, Peter. We're going to take a break now, and then we'll come back and uh, talk about the local forest around Prince George.
5: The City of Prince George is hosting three in-person Q&A events this month as part of the 2024 budget consultation
6: process. Meetings are scheduled for the Hart Pioneer Centre on Tuesday, College Heights Secondary School on Wednesday, and the Prince George Civic Centre on Thursday. Each meeting will
5: start at 5 and will last about two hours. There will also be an opportunity to learn more about the official community plan review from planning staff at each event.
6: Learn to love your smile again at Der Denture Center. Der Denture Center offers a full range of denture services, from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Der Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation. No referral required. For help with your existing set or if you need new, Der Denture Center in the Victoria Medical Building, call 250-562-6638. Ron's Hole in the Wall is now open six days a week in the Q3 Creative Business Hub. Stop by and check out his great assortment of books, magazines, DVDs, and collectibles, Tuesday through Friday between 10 and 2. Ron's Hole in the Wall is also open during the Q3 Community Market, Saturday from 8.30 to 2. Drop in regularly as always something different in store. Ron's Hole in the Wall now open Tuesday through Saturday in the Q3 Creative Business Hub, downtown at the corner of Quebec and 3rd.
5: First Student is a leader in student transportation and is excited to be adding to their family of school bus drivers and licensed mechanics. Let First Student put you in the driver's seat. You'll need a full driver's license, clean record, must be safety-focused, and enjoy working with children. Apply online through workatfirst.com or call Christine at 250-900-8220. Apply today through workatfirst.com or by calling Christine at 250-900-8220.
0: You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Okay, we're back, and we're going to go to uh, James Steidel and talk about the aspens and uh, forests around Prince George and what we should be doing. James?
4: Yeah, so I wrote a piece there for The Citizen last week. Um, I've got a couple. I'm working on the second part to this. Uh, yeah, after just after a uh, summer like this summer, I think 5% of Canada's forests went up in flames. So a lot of communities were threatened by wildfire. Um, it's only a matter of time before Prince George is threatened by a wildfire before that uh, evacuation notice for the city comes, comes down the pipeline. So I think we've really got to take this issue uh, seriously and we've got to start being proactive on this and, and start doing stuff. And it doesn't really look to me like we're, we're all that uh, interested in, in, in taking this issue seriously, so that's kind of the point of this this article. Not too many people read it; it wasn't a, a trending opinion piece last week. So I think uh, there's still some work to do to get the public engaged on this and and drive home the importance of it to City Council. Basically, for this piece, I just I just wanted to you know just talk about uh, it's, it's a a boring old point by this point. If you've listened to me uh, talk about this before, which is just the difference in flammability rates for the different types of forest. Uh, I think one of the reasons why Prince George is actually in a good position for wildfires is about 60% of the forest around in Prince George city limits is broadleaf deciduous, uh, mostly aspen uh, and some birch. You now, those trees are much, much harder to light on fire uh, compared to pine and spruce. So we've got some pretty good deciduous firebreaks, uh, you know, around UNBC in particular, up on the escarpment there, uh, south of College Heights, and... You know, we, we've got to kind of maintain that and, and keep that type of forest uh, at the forefront. Uh, I think around places around Prince George and in, in urban interface areas, we're doing the opposite. If you look at that new development on Tyner, it's basically they've got a wall of pine trees growing between the road and that development. Like that's just completely off the rails, uh, not fire smart i don't know how that stuff gets approved you know obviously nobody's providing direction to the landscaping departments of these developers uh when they when they go and when people when these landscape actually i've talked to a few on the phone uh, you know they just think that aspen is weeds and their job as a landscaper is to get rid of those trees and you'll look you'll see it all over the place they leave the spruce behind right those aren't weeds so they leave the spruce trees uh that uh, the where the Walmart is, that uh, landowner there, I mean, I saw a crew he had there cutting down every willow, birch, and aspen and they leave all the spruce trees. You know, that's not fire smart. So this, this is the kind of cultural um, cultural kind of uh, building block we've got as a society that conifer has value, deciduous is weeds. We've got to turn that around and we've got to recognize it for fire smarting. We've got to look at our forests entirely different. Uh, you know, BC timber sales, and those, those examples I talked about, those are kind of minor. I think big picture, it's what's happening out on the landscape, what's happening out in the forest around Prince George, and, and where the wildfire is going to hit us from. It's probably going to come in from the Beaverly area, uh, from North Nechaco. It's going to jump the river around Myworth and probably come at us from that side. And if you look at the history of those cut blocks there, we actually logged quite a bit of those stands. In the 2000s, a lot of them had pine beetle. Well, we went and reforested them with all pine trees. Okay. We, we sprayed with helicopters, with Roundup, a whole bunch, like hundreds of hectares of that stuff, uh, all after 2009. Uh, but we sprayed a bunch of that inside city limits, right behind Vanway School there. Uh, three big cut blocks were sprayed in city limits. I mean, this is after the city came up with a wildfire report. Saying that these deciduous broadleaf stands are the city's fire break. And then we have BC timber sales basically, you know, throwing us under the bus as a city and making the problem worse. And now we're going to have to spend money to go and, uh, remediate these, these forests that we spent money making into fire traps. So that's the yeah, other, that's kind of what part two is about. Uh, that I'm working on right now. It's well, how can we go into these kind of stands and and thin them out without spending eleven thousand dollars a hectare, which I think is the price tag for wildfire mitigation, which is a lot of money. You know, for a million one point one million dollars, we're going to treat a hundred hectares. So you do the math. Like this is this is a multi million dollar project to improve the fire security of Prince George, and I think there's cheaper ways to do it. I think we uh, we need to look at commercial firewood. Operators, you know, commercial firewood is something that's basically illegal. Uh, you can't get, uh, you can't sell crown timber for firewood. You know, I think we could identify areas that we want to fire smart and just say, hey, you can have free firewood. You can sell it. We don't care. Uh, you could get small jipo uh, kind of logging operators in there with um, pull out a couple of logs uh, with with um, you know small equipment and do the job for free basically you know like why do we got to spend all this money on on government programs and i, I just kind of look at the classic the classic tendency of government which is to use a crisis and to profit off of it and we got to make sure that doesn't happen with uh, wildfire mitigation okay thanks james
1: <coughs> excuse me i was thinking uh why can't we connect this protecting the uh, forest and the the fire problems Around Prince George, with the uh, uh, community forest uh, idea that we have for the whole province, anybody looking at
4: that? Um, not really. I mean, there's like if you look at the the Ministry of Forests, like how they're dealing with um, stocking standards, there are some new standards where they actually allow deciduous around around cities. This is a kind of a new thing, and it, it's. But there's still resistance, right? There's still resistance to, to allowing broadly forests. Like if you look at the, the stocking standards that apply to every major forest stewardship plan across the entire central interior, you're not allowed to have a pure deciduous forest bigger than 5% of a cup lock. Okay, that's the maximum size. So if you've got 6% of the cup lock in Aspen, you're gonna get penalized for that. So you actually wanna go below 5% to make sure you hit that. Um, to make sure you don't exceed the target. <coughs> they're, they're, they still have that rule on the books, okay? Even after all these years of forest fire, uh, every single cup block, I repeat, uh, under every major forest stewardship plan, it has to be 95% dominated by the most flammable uh, tree species we could possibly grow in our area, which is uh, lodgepole pine. Um, you know, but it has to be conifers. So, uh Usually that means uh, lodgepole pine, and they haven't changed it. Like they talk about changing it, uh, or they talk about well, we'll allow a few more percentage of broadleaf mixed in with a conifer. But people have to realize that even if you have seventy-five percent broadleaf and twenty-five percent conifer, that's almost as flammable as pure conifer. You need the pure one hundred percent deciduous stands that are healthy, that are young, and that's exactly what uh, the province has a policy uh, has bas- has basically. Um, being geared against so we've been making the problem worse for fire and the ministry is still doing it
1: okay we're going to go for a break now we'll come back and kick this around a little bit more
5: Donations to the War Amps have a lasting impact on amputees. Today, your support gives them the artificial limbs and resources they need for everyday activities and learning to live with amputation. Having access to our essential programs helps amputees prepare for tomorrow on their road to independence. The War Amps is committed to improving the quality of life for Canadian amputees. But this wouldn't be possible without you. To learn how your donation helps, visit
6: waramps.ca. If you are learning English, the downtown branch of your Prince George Public Library is offering you a weekly chance to practice in a comfortable and safe space. The English Conversation Group meetings Thursday evenings include free conversation, structured vocabulary-rich discussion, and many language-building games. Get together with other people learning how to speak English for an hour of fun and instruction. The English Conversation Group, a free drop-in event, five to six Thursday evenings through November 2nd at the downtown branch of your Prince George Public Library. The Prince George Hospice
1: Palliative Care Society offers family grief support services. The service supports children who are grieving and their parents or caregivers. The programs are separate but run at the same time. The same topics will be presented to each group, which can then be shared at home with the family together. There is also a children's drop-in support group. Registration is required, and registration and full details are available from the Prince George Hospice Palliative Care Society online at
5: pghpcs.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today, a 30% chance of flurries late this morning. Winds from the north at 20, gusting to 40, a high of minus 1 with a wind chill to minus 9. Clearing tonight, gusting north winds continuing, a low of minus 9 with a wind chill to minus 16. For Tuesday, sunny and
0: windy, a high of minus 4 with a wind chill to minus 9. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George, this is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Okay, we're back, and we're still talking about the uh, forests around Prince George. John, did you want to say something on that?
3: Yeah, I was uh, <clears throat> going to say, James, y- y- you pointed out that everybody seems to be avoiding the issue. I think locally here, within the municipality, our jurisdiction, uh, that needs to be brought before uh, emergency planning and parks and recreation under direction of council. Because people often forget that uh, things are done by, uh, by motion and by law, by council. So it takes the mayor and council's initiative pushed by the public to turn around and launch initiatives. So unless somebody's putting a fire under the backsides to launch an initiative to address uh, fire mitigation and stuff... Within the the city 's realm of responsibility, nothing 's going to happen. So bringing those two parties in emergency management or uh, emergency preparedness and parks and recreation, the people that are going to have to look after the trees and and the green spaces and stuff, I think we can actually do something, but we have to do it locally. We got to quit counting on the province to to do our backyard cleanup. Uh, you know, seriously, if you got a dog, you clean up your own backyard. Uh, and that's what we need to do. We gotta quit looking for help from somewhere else to do those things.
4: Yeah, a great point, John. And I mean, I think the gist there is we need leadership and I'm, I'm not seeing it from city council. Uh, you know, they, they will say that, oh, we, we've got, um, some fire smart initiatives, but they're all kind of disjointed. They don't really make sense and they're expensive. You know, I think they're, they're talking about $300,000 uh, on thinning the forest up behind Vanway. You know that's a big big chunk of change that's uh, it's not, I'm pretty sure that's a municipal initiative I might I might be wrong about that. Yeah.
3: Yeah. If it's a municipal a municipal grounds it's it's a municipal initiative.
4: You know, so they'll say oh yeah we are we are doing stuff but you know there needs to be a bigger picture approach uh you know the you know meanwhile the province is kind of undermining us in city limits on their crown land. <clears throat> you know that's got to be addressed. There's got to be there's got there's got to be some coherence to the policy and and we can't be working against each other and I don't know, you're right. I mean, it takes mayor and council to stand up to these guys and, yep. and say this is what's going to happen. This is our community uh, that's a threat here, and stuff needs to happen.
3: Well, I, I'm looking at it this way. If we grab the reins, we look after our own responsibility, and we can show with documented proofs that the, the steps we're taking are effective, then we can go back to the province and say, hey, look, this is what we did. This is the benefits that we got from it. We need you guys to hop on board, at least with your crown lands within our jurisdiction, and release it and let us deal with it. I, I think maybe we can get a spin that way.
6: Yep. Uh,
1: Peter,
2: do you want to comment? I don't have much to add. To, I, I agree with James and what and John are saying, other than the. Other than to say, you know, yeah, yes, we, you know, we, we live in the midst of these forests, right? The communities, you know, are situated in the midst of these forests, but uh, we need more control that the for the communities to have over what happens to this forest resource, whether it's whether we're talking about the, uh, you know, the glyphosate spraying uh, and uh, the community forests, etc. You know, we need we need more of that, right? And I think that's the the, the critical thing, where people have more say. And to, we live in the midst of this forest; we should have more say over it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, you know one of the the aspects that we're stuck with is that you know we have this huge land base for the city, which uh, basically uh, the province allowed us to take. Thank you very much. Because we've been paying for it ever since. I think it's 323 square kilometers or something. Same size as Surrey and Kamloops. The three largest land-based cities in uh, British Columbia. But uh, we have the biggest amount of problems. Kamloops don't have a big forest problem around it like we do. And certainly Surrey doesn't. And so we have a set of problems that's kind of unique to interior cities a lot of people over the years were actually living in that forest before they became part of the city mm. you know the amalgamation was 1975 so we inherited a lot of that and of course we should be getting funding from uh, the provincial government to do something about it because they're part and parcel of go ahead james
4: yeah, i just want to stress that the firewood option i mean i Commercial firewood, I think, is a is a great opportunity for people in Prince George uh, to to make a, a few extra bucks. You know, and it's something that um, that's really easy to legalize. It's just basically identify places and, and say that uh, you know what, you're gonna we're not going to charge you stumpage on the firewood here, uh, and we're even uh, for, and for starters, we're actually going to let you take it because you can't take crown timber for. Firewood anywhere else in the province. Even if you pull the wood out of a, a brush pile, that's going to get burnt. That's what happened to a fella down in Kamloops here a couple of years ago. There's a really, a really um, uh, crazy article where he had a pile of firewood that he pulled all out of slash piles. <coughs> Excuse me, and he got um, all that confiscated by the government. He wasn't allowed to do it. So, you know, I think like, legalizing commercial firewood is a great way to. To reduce the fire risk in Prince George, and, and wouldn't cost us any money. We could do stuff like that for for no cost. Um,
1: well, that's why I was mentioning the community forest because you would think, just like you, you would think that you know a forward looking uh, city could take the community forest concept and tie it in with what we need to do to you know make Prince George safer from fires, and then get the permit which you already Mm -hmm. have under a community forest, to log those areas where need to be logged because they're a fire threat and of course you sell those logs and you're allowed to do that under the community charter or the community forest deal and you sell those logs and that's the revenue you use to to work around the city to improve everything including the trees that you're talking about and the rest of it, it, it could be planned and done over a period of time and and work just fine. But who's going to do it? Mm-hmm. So, the question. So, yeah,
4: I was going to mention uh, briefly that yeah, we did have the community forest. And I think that's that's absolutely a great uh, vehicle to kind of do these kind of prior these kind of priorities. Uh, I was chatting with somebody who was involved with the community forest here in Prince George, which we had up until 2013. Apparently, the province wouldn't let them uh, uh, do deciduous stocking standards even in a, in a community forest. So you need—you still need the province to let you uh, and approve certain stocking standards. And when we did our community forest, the province would not allow us to grow fire-resistant forests around Prince George, if you can believe that.
1: Hmm. Well, we don't have to grow it. Why? The only thing that you want to stock maybe is, you know, a, a tree that has some value, monetary value. If you just go in and log an area in this Prince George here, and then uh, take out the fir and the spruce and the pine. The cottonwoods and the birch and everything will grow back in on their own. They don't have to be planted.
4: Yeah, and that's what we want, right? Uh,
1: they'll do that on their own. The government can blame somebody if they want, but uh, it's nature. we are got to go for a break now.
6: Life before the pulp mills from your Council of Seniors is a unique look back at the early years of Prince George, the Goat Island swimming hole and Pier, the old army hospital, and making do during World War II. It's a look back, using the words of past Prince George residents such as the Peckhams, the Olingers, the Kirschkees, and others. Our city in the 40s and 50s and early 60s comes alive for just $20. Life before the pulp mills, available at the new Council of Seniors Resource Center, 1330 Fifth Avenue.
0: Are you thinking of selling your business? It's Dave Fuller here, a business coach and a business broker living right here in Prince George. The challenge of being a business owner is that much of our retirement funds are often tied up in the business. If you are getting ready to retire and sell your business, give me a call, 250-617-7467, and we can talk confidentially about how much your business might be worth and how you might be able to get that money out of the business and into your pocket. Again, Dave Fuller, 250-617-7467, or check out our website, pivotleader.com. At Pivot Leader, we help you grow, train, and sell your business.
4: Eat healthy and fresh at Homesteader Meats, founded by Ben and Rossella Clausen in 1982. Homesteader Meats has two premium quality meat and gluten-free products, plus Wednesday is Senior's Day at Homesteader Meats. Seniors 55 and over save 10% off regular prices. Single portions are available on most items, including pierogies and sausages, and are half-pound packages off ground beef, ground pork, stew meat, and meat pies. Everything from Erladen to patties is at Homesteader
6: Meats in two locations, College Heights and Park Hill Center. Learn to love your smile again at Dirt Denture Center. Dirt Denture Center offers a full range of denture services, from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Dirt Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building, with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation. No referral required. For help with your existing set, or if you need new, Dirt Denture center in the victoria medical building call 250-562-6638
0: it's after nine on prince george's community station 93.1 cfis fm
6: okay we're back
1: and uh got another uh, subject here we didn't get to yet i'm going to go to john to get it nightclub owner suing city of prince george for negligence on downtown property crime kind of an interesting thing taking place there john you want to give us some
3: background on that Sure, well as, as a lot of you listeners out there are aware, um, we had an explosion downtown. Our downtown core for the last six years has been an ever sliding downhill, uh, trip. Uh, crime in the downtown, vandalism, theft, shoplifting, willful damage, open drug use, uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a sad state of affairs, uh, culminating in uh, an explosion that we had several weeks back. Um, this gentleman's lawsuit, the the owner of Heartbreakers, uh, his lawsuit is against the city for their dereliction and responsibility of maintaining a safe downtown core. Yeah, uh, he's uh, citing bylaws, RCMP, um, and the lack of patrols, and moreover the lack of enforcement. Um, Some people have spoken to me about this and said, well, yeah, I can't see where that's going to uh, be an effective case. And actually, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going to put that out right out front. But in the grand scheme of things, if you look at it, we are paying tax dollars for policing, and that is to be managed by city administration and by city council and that needs to be addressed. We've got over 6 years of of damage. A lot of promises were made by uh the uh, during the former past election that uh, folks were going to turn around and address the downtown core and nothing's being done. So this business owner um due to the damage to the building which is right next door to the old uh, Achillean restaurant, he suffered extensive damage to his building, uh windows, air conditioning, uh, things of that nature and he's going for compensation from the city for that uh, citing the lack of policing and the lack of enforcement so that's that's it in a nutshell uh, and that's just him launching an action I think it could get worse if that turned into a class action suit and the other businesses of downtown hopped in on that bandwagon as well the city would be getting a, a rude awakening
1: yeah, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, some interesting points there. Um, one of the other ones that we didn't get to is uh, was a case that goes back quite a number of years, and the uh, bureaucrats who rejected power generation plan to cost taxpayers $10 million. So they rejected this <clears throat> run-of-the-river project, didn't do it properly, And, uh, actually did it illegally. And now, 15, 20 years later, they're going to have to pay at least $10 million, the taxpayers, to this run-of-the-river guy. So, nobody expected that he would win the case, but he did. And I just wanted to connect that to, uh, what John's saying is that, you know, there are possibilities here that there's some liability on the, uh, council, uh, to look after these things, and the, and the person that's arguing that point right now is saying that we should have been we were aware or should have been aware that people were inside this building vandalizing it and doing things, and as a consequence, by doing nothing, later on we had this explosion, and so therefore you're liable because you should have done something through the city police force, which is the RCMP. Like we hired the RCMP. On a contractual basis to do policing for us, though, and we give them some indication of what we want done in what areas. Uh, you know, we do have some input into what they police. So I can see where you know it's too bad if we have to go down this road when we have these people sitting there every Monday, and uh, I'm just waiting for them to start taking the initiative on some of this stuff rather than have a being surrounded by a bunch of coyotes yelling and howling and screaming, saying, do something, do something, and they're not doing anything. It's just not good for the whole city. It's not good for anything. I mean, we're paying to get things done. We need to get it done. You know, I'm not going to get into it in detail today, but I'll tell you, if if it's hockey rinks or if it's swimming pools or if it's art centers or if it's any of those things, and fire halls, new fire halls for that matter, it can get done pretty fast, you know. But some of the stuff where, you know, the things going on downtown here, it's a disgrace, and it's an insult to the business people down here. They have some responsibility, of course, to get in on it. But we got to do something about this. Sitting back and watching and waiting for God to do it, that's a long shot. So, yeah. <laughs> say anything, James?
4: Yeah, I I, um, I read that case about the $10 million fine for the run of the river. I mean, i I don't know if they're Exactly comparable in that case. I think the bureaucrat was trying to stand up for the public interest and and gave the run of the river, uh, the run of the, the run around. Um, and uh, Alan might like that pun. Hey, eh? I saw you chuckle over there. But yeah, but yeah, I think. Uh, you know, I, th- I think there might be a case to be made here if you're not uh, if you're being completely negligent and in, in your downtown where it becomes a fire and explosion hazard. Yes, there's got to be accountability at some point. So, yeah, the point I was just making there,
1: James, is that the guy who took up to court and he won. And normally you don't win those cases; the government wins it. So yeah, that's true. That, that was the thing that, that you know the, the idea that the government can win every case. Maybe that's starting to change. And uh, the city could lose one of these ones. They're one of the big ones. And then they'll be forced to do stuff. They're far better off to take the lead and, and get this stuff done and off the table. So,
3: Just to, just to benchmark really quickly, we've come up to the one-year anniversary of our sitting council and mayor. We have, as taxpayers, paid out just under a half million dollars in wages for a year's worth of What? Think about that for a second. What initiatives have they launched that are uh, that are pivotal in the downtown core? What have they done? And that's a half million dollars in wages that we have just blown. So think about this moving forward. We've got them for another three years. So yeah, we've got to put the heat on them and they've got to start doing something there on a Monday night. Uh, we just can't be playing games with
4: this stuff. Well, well on that note, guys uh you might have a chance to uh chat uh, garth frizell up he's going to be at the a fundraising dinner this friday uh, for the united nations club in prince george that uh is just getting fired up there's also an event up at unbc on friday at, um starts at 11 uh, goes till 1 30. it's kind of a colloquium uh, we got a big wig from the un coming into town uh, to address uh the colloquium so um I'll I'll do a post on my uh on my Twitter page James Dayle at Twitter uh for more information.
1: Stop using the big words like colloquium and uh, I'll just turn you off. <laughs> 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 Peter, you got anything to add to this because running uh, out no, of
2: time. I know just uh, sympathize with the uh nightclub owner, right? You know in this circumstance, right? That's uh, you know, through no fault of his own. Uh, his his uh, business has been really se- severely hit here. And I guess, uh, I guess we'll see in the legal case, uh, you know, the, uh, at one point the, the article here talks about the claim, uh, the, the claim states com- complaints about the strong smell of natural grass were reported that day. Well, I think uh, if it was reported to the city, then maybe the city's biliable, you yeah.
1: Okay, <clears throat> that's our program for today. I want to thank everybody for listening, thank my panel, and we'll be back next Monday with hopefully uh, some more interesting topics.
0: After Nine is a weekday presentation of CFIS-FM. After Nine is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Darren Guess, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. Listen for a rebroadcast of today's program tonight at 10, and for past shows, check out the archives link at cfisfm.com. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to 93.1 CFISFM, proudly supported by local businesses like New Look Interiors, now located at number 12E, 1839 First Avenue.